0: there's so many chapters in a, you know, cooking or a hospitality career that you have to just know where those failures are, hopefully not do them again. But like, you know, I, I always go back to why you do something, you know, you need to have the essence of why.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The last two years have been life-changing for many, and for those with eyes wide open, the chance to take on a new role and adventure is giving hope to a new dawn of hospitality. What will that look like in the coming years? Matt Jumancius is the Executive Chef of the Lawn Hotel in Victoria. Matt, how are you?
0: Uh, Good. Thank you very much for having me, Huck.
1: It's good to be here. You've um, had some pretty big changes in the last couple of years, like many, but um, pretty, pretty monumental for you. What's it been like the last couple of years for you?
0: Um, look, yeah, really interesting. I um, have probably been a bit more fortunate than a few out there. You know, I had a, uh, a business that was more focused on a takeaway trade and retail. Um, so that really kept me busy over the last two years. And, um, sort of led me on to other things and other adventures as well and challenges.
1: Well, you've um, you've got a new adventure at the moment at the Lawn Hotel, which we can get into. But, you know, you've done many things, but you just sort of briefly mentioned Fish by Moonlight and obviously Captain Moonlight as well. What was that period of time like for you delving into the seafood game sort of regionally like that? Oh,
0: look, we found it, both my partner Gemma and I found it, you know super exciting um she had family in the area, and we you know we used to come here most weekends and we really asked ourselves where could we um improve and bring what we can or what we know to the area and, and enjoy that part of community spirit um you know being by the coast, there's you know what we work with is a sense of place and you know. There was um, probably a, l- a little bit of a lack of a seafood focus, I suppose, um, and the accessibility of really good sort of Victorian seafood, um, and we really wanted to sort of highlight that, and especially fish by moonlight, we wanted to be sort of market leaders, you know. And we 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 asked the question ourselves: Why? Why do we want to do it? And the question, and that for us, it was like people were asking us. Every day, where can we get seafood? We're coming down here. We want to stay for a few days. I want to buy some fresh seafood. I want to eat some, you know, Um, and we really thought there was a good hole in the market for something like that. And it wasn't driven by financial gain or anything like that. It was about how can we create an experience for people to come down here and enjoy not only one day or an afternoon, but a few days and sit here and, and really capture the beauty of the place on the surf coast, you know.
1: Well, you tapped into some of um, Victoria's stunning seafood. What were some of the sort of um, highlights for you in regards to seafood that you got to champion?
0: Look, for me, by far, and, and I call it the Rolls Royce of flatheads, is um, rock, flathead, rock flathead for me. Um, that 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 firstly is, you know, it's the number one on my list, um, and then, you know, you go, and unfortunate now, um, Port Phillip sardines, you know, there's no there's no commercial fishing in Port Phillip Bay anymore. So, you know, little beautiful species like that, calamaris, you know, local calamari, we used to get scallops and then everything from Lakes Entrance from Bugs to King George Whitings, you know, so all really, you know, smaller fish. Um, school fish, you know, I really like to focus on that, and I had fun with little things, you know, uh, enjoyable, enjoyable sort of species that came into market every day. And I, I worked really closely um, with a few suppliers in the city, in the markets down there, and down here, mainly in Apollo Bay and stuff like that. And um, it was a, it was a beautiful connection, and you know, I really we forget that there's such a craft in seafood. Um, You know, we have apprentice butchers and we really focus on those little things, but there is no such thing in the seafood world. And, you know, we have so many species that um, need to be appreciated and understood. And we just don't have that focus on a government level towards the seafood industry. Um, And, you know, I believe it needs a bit of attention to be fair.
1: You made quite an impact um, with Fish by Moonlight and Captain Moonlight. Um, Was it hard to let go of?
0: Um, Personally, for me, I tend not to have an emotional connection so much these days, Huck. Um, (laughs) I I love the process and I love being part of it and I love the growth um, and the enjoyment people get out of it. Um, But I also love the challenges that... And the uncomfortable challenges that I put myself into for future, future as well, um, you know. And we all have to. You know, I'm quite a driven personality, and I love those challenges and putting myself in the positions where, um, you know, I have to get the best out of myself. You know, and I loved the chapter of Captain Moonlight and what we, met and that impact it did, and Fish by Moonlight as well. Um, But I also love what I have now and what I've created and what the future holds, you know. And that's pretty important, I think, from a hospitality perspective, Huck, because we all go through uh, quite a lot of failures in life, and that's related to hospitality as well. And... To not only accept them and understand what those failures are, but how to, you know, we all look at how can we improve on it and all the rest of it, but to understand that and to move on it and to, um, you know, to not reinvent, but, you know, just just um, have a better connection and an understanding of how you can,
1: you know, be It's an interesting perspective on the the importance of failures and taking learnings from them, which I want to dive into in a little bit. But take us back to when you were young. What was food like in your family growing up?
0: I my um, uh, my background is Greek Macedonian, so you know, I, as you can imagine, I grew up in the uh, the mid-70s to early 80s in my childhood, Uh, and they were pretty raw, I I suppose the best way to describe it. But, you know, it was such a a, a loving, uh, caring environment that, you know, really family-focused. My, you know, grandparents were really close and connected and, you know, we were really a typical, you know, Greek Greeks, you know, that just, you know, we're first, second generation Greeks and we went there, we had vegetable gardens in the backyard, we have an agar in the garage, we had a little wine cellar downstairs in the garage as well, we, well, we made, you know, made wine and out of the grape skins we did grappa, um, you know, so for us that there was a real connection of ingredients. On a yearly basis, and look, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought every family did that growing up. You know what I mean? And um, you know, we'll, you know, the early eighties, and we'll, you know, my brother—I have a twin brother—and we're quite dark, you know. And we went to, you know, Anglo-Saxon school, and it was, you know, we'll picked on, and you know, we'll call wog boy, and all those typical things that you see. But you know, it, I, I sort of. I wore it as a little bit of a badge, I suppose, you know. It didn't really phase me too much. It was like, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit different and that's okay, you know. Um, I really didn't consider it as, uh, you know, detrimental for me personally. I, I, I saw it as, um, you know, something I can try and be, you know, what can I be good at and, you know, made me, you know, really strive to be strong, stronger like that. Um, but, yeah, um, I loved it look, we had we had lands. My grandma would show us what tomatoes would, you know, what they should smell like and taste like at the right time. I remember cucumbers, we weren't allowed to step on the stalks because they made the cucumbers bitter. And like, it was really, you know, it was really uh, fun, uh, enjoyable. Uh, you know, we used to come home after school and go to my grandma's and it was always something cooking. And there was a lot of legumes and you know that really understanding of an appreciation of seasonal cooking, I think, was really important. Um, and something I didn't really understand even as an apprentice or when I started cooking until I would go back, and she would just, you know, clip me over the years and go like, "Why are you giving me a tomatoes in winter? That like it doesn't make sense." And it's like, well, we're doing it at work, and it's like it doesn't make sense. So, you know, it's really, it's really important to understand
1: that. Are there any dishes um, from that period of time or feasts that you sort of really epitomise that sort of uh, family setting that you had?
0: Yeah, like we, um, we, we have a thing called kora. So, I, I think the best way to describe that it's a big um, pie. Um, sort of like a spanakopita, but like a, in, a, in a massive uh, circular dish, like a, like a family pizza, I suppose, the way so i describe it, that size like that. But, um, you know, we would do, she would do her own filo and it was really important, the layering and the textures and, you know, typical where you put on a cloth and stretch it and you would fold it and then we'll get lots of like greens and do a hota, which is just like your real wild greens and she'd have you know, silver beaten sorrels and, you know, whatever herbs and stuff that she could cook up. And, you know, she'll break it up with some feta and some ricotta and um, put in that pie dish. And then um, you would have different different flavors of pies, you know, one with leeks and one with totter, and another one with some kind of mince and another one with pumpkin and like, that was that was our break in of bread, really, um, in a in a Greek Macedonian family, um, and then we'll have things like a, a, the other big thing was was bop and agro lemonol, which is you know your classic soups. Um, you know, one was heavily like legume. We lived in you know historically that they, they live in the mountains of Greece, so they they live off a lot of legumes and um, stews, um, and so you know we grew up on that, and that was just. It was normal. It was so normal for us, like you know, we. we I, I don't think I saw a, a packet of, you know, like a TV food or anything like that. In my whole upbringing, um, which is, you know, something you really take for granted, I suppose. Later in life, you know, you you really understood what those what those roots were, you know, as a child, and how that really connected me now later in life and you know how uh you know even now i cook every night at home with my partner and i and we and it came it's just super simple but it's still it's still lovely and enjoyable and you know to spend 20 minutes to half an hour with your partner next to each other on the on the you know cooking and in a kitchen uh, and having that connection is so important you know that we we tend to forget, you know, it's something that you can work together, you can talk about the day and like you can put your phone away and you know, you can put on some, you know, soft little music in the background. I don't want to make it too romantic, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's a real um you know, we we forget we forget those important parts of day to day daily routines that are yeah. really so
1: important for us. Where did your career in food begin?
0: Um well Pretty hard to say. First of all, my look, look, my well, we had hospitality businesses growing up. My grandma had a food truck back in the eighties, you know, and she would go to the, you know, the little Nong warehouses and feed all the workers there, you know, and I remember. You know, I couldn't even reach the flat grill and I was flipping burgers and she did stuff like that and like I would help her out and you know, we were kids and she was minding us, but that you know, we were always surrounded by hospitality in in ways. And they were like mainly short order cook Cooking, I suppose, the best way to describe it. And that's what a lot of immigrants did back then, you know, they had fish and chip shops. And, you know, my uncle had a, a little cafe at the CUB and I used to go there and you see all the beer being made and stuff like that. Um, um, but my first personal exposure working was actually at my auntie's Mexican restaurant, for Christ's sake. It was, it was called it was called Tres Otros, which is like the three eights. Um, and that was in Springvale on Springvale Road in Melbourne. Um, uh, but it was this beautiful house that, you know, just they rendered it like it was a Mexican little house. And, you know, they cooked beans, refried beans and all that. And I was worked as a kitchen hand and, you know, I helped them out and stuff like that. And um, I was actually going through uni at the time. And um, you know, I had—I don't know—there was some kind of social involvement that I really loved, and uh, I really, you know, I loved walking to into the kitchen and the atmosphere, and you know how the chefs would talk, and it was—it was, you know, it was just. Alive, and you know, when you sit in a lecturing room and listen listen to this lecturer for hours, and you're going, "Why do I need to do this?" And um, you know, and and I thought to myself, you know, I went through a couple of years of uni, and I thought to myself, "Oh, look, you know, if I can just apply myself to um, to the studying of cooking, as I as I did throughout the rest of my life, then you know, maybe I can, you know." tackle it other than just being a, a cook and just really understand it a little bit more, not, not intellectually, but, you know, just understand the the, the basics and classics. And, it's, you know, back then, Huck, there was no internet, you know, it was just books and we just read and, I, you know, I can tell you now, like the first 15 years of my cooking career was just reading. And it wasn't about I have to read a book. It was like I'll read a recipe or, I'll you know, my, my father found my cuisine in the rubbish tip. And he goes, oh, you know, son, I found this. It's like an old edition. It was from the 50s or 60s. I go, I don't know. He goes, I don't know what it is. It's something cooking. Here you have it. You know, it's like when you when you discover Escoffier and, and read little recipes and, you know, um, understanding how the poetry of writing recipes is so beautiful. Elizabeth David does it wonderfully, you know, Delia Smith. And, you know, we don't have to have these beautifully illustrated um, um, cooking books when you can just read the poetry of cooking it. So it's such an amazing way and it makes you think about it and, you know, how they de- describe this dishes, as scoffier especially. It's just like, oh, fuck, it's so simple. Yeah. Fuck, you know, it's just, it's just so simple and it makes sense and that's how it should be,
1: you know. You did your apprenticeship at Café Grossi. What was that kitchen like compared to what you knew before that?
0: It was it was a league. Let's just go there. It was like, you were no longer in the reserves. You're like, you're in the top 18, you know, the first, the first. So, um, uh, look, a a real shock the first couple of weeks. Um, but I loved it. Like the Grossi family, you know, I, I owe my appreciation to cooking and my work ethic to them. Like, you know, Guy and his father and his, you know, his brother-in-law, Chris Rodriguez was, you know, they're instrumental to where I am today, without a doubt. You know, I go into every kitchen thinking what I did there. Um, it was really special. You know, we, you know, we made, we had a beautiful anti-pasty shelf in the middle of the restaurant. You can't do it these days because it's all governed by refrigerators and all the rest of it. But like, you know, our job was to get all the scraps from the chef from the day before and make antipasti you know it was three tiers and we had to do probably 20 antipasties and it was like you know what do we do with spinach spinach stalks and we had to do a frittata of some kind or we had to pickle mushrooms or you know so we really learned the beautiful basics and like that and we had to make bread every morning and then in the afternoons we had to do the ice creams or we had a so we did desserts in the, in the afternoon and stuff like that, and in between, if we were lucky, we could break down some lands for the abakio with, you know, paraffinian, and like, you know, and and that first week I started there, Frank Komora started as well. So we we did our apprenticeship together, um, you know, Frank from Movita and and um and you know Marty Beck who has Dr. Marty's crumpets. So you know we are all really good mates, and there was just great, you know, really energetic kitchen um and we, we really pushed ourselves um um and it was a you know look it's a it's a tough environment like you know you worked hard I'm not you know it, you worked hard but we there was a lot of enjoyment and a lot of laughs out of there and like you know there was there was the beauty of cooking like we the the, the grossy family they don't hold back they just if you you know if I asked I wanted to do a a passion fruit sorbet and get me a couple of tins of passion fruit the next day i had four boxes of passion fruit that i had to pick and so that's that was the mentality you know so it wasn't you don't do things in halves you you really understood it and it was like you know this is not how it is you know this you've got to bring it back and use the best and um it was you know it was it really taught me um uh, not to cut corners and you know serve really super delicious food, you know, and it you know his father was really great as well he you know'd teach us little lessons like we'd go to work and then you know for five minutes late he'd come come on sit with me, and we had to have a coffee with him and read the paper for forty minutes, so you know over the rest of the day you 'd be in the ship trying to chase things, so he 'd teach you a lesson not to be late, so you know little little things like that were really instrumental about how you should be in a kitchen, you know. So, you know, those lessons in life, you know, are great. And look, you know, I was probably a little bit of an entitled shit back then. And, you know, you think you're really good, Huck, but, you know, these people really ground you and say you've got a lot to learn. And, you know, if you want to be part of this industry, it's, you know, it's about, you know, the graft and, you know, you you know get your luck through hard work and you know that's what partly it is
1: early on in your career you started your first restaurant in the Yarry valley tell us about that experience
0: Ah, oh, the rivalry well that was back then i was probably like 24 25 so i'd come i'd come out of i don't know come out of the Grossies. I, brief i lived in darwin for a while um and then i went to thailand i lived in thailand for nearly eight months and i came back and i thought oh met up with one of my old grossy mates and he said there was this sort of cheap restaurant around in in the towards Warburton, and we thought oh you know it costs less than a car sort of thing back then it was let's chip in a bit of money and see how it goes. And it was, it was a beautiful little cottage and it was called the Rybury after the native, uh, Berry, of course. Um, and you know, we look, we were young, ambitious, young chefs. Uh, it was a great learning curve. Um, but you know, it taught me business, you know, what needed to be done to, to run a successful business. And I can tell you, it, involves a lot of hard work, you know, and you need to understand not just cooking, but you need to understand the economics of a kitchen and the economics of a business and and also, you know, your demographic and, you know, your your community and, you know, your guests and, you know, what that guest experience looks like. It's just not about putting a great piece of food on the plate. It's the, it's the whole encompasses the whole experience, you know. Um, and we, look, I'm going to fully admit we just weren't ready for it, you know, and that's, you know, one of the failures in life that you think, look, it was a gamble. You rolled the dice and look, the, the gamble paid off in life, you know, but it didn't pay off economically, which is fine. You know, you, you have to take that and you have to understand where you sit, um, in that space, I suppose. And you know i walked away going well i need you know i'm i still need to learn a lot a hell of a lot you know and you know that really brought my experiences onto you know as soon as i left there i was like oh, i really want to go to europe and really and really um understand like what it's about and be involved you know
1: Take us over to Europe because you um, worked with um, amazing uh, chefs like Heston Blumenthal and and Rally Lee as well. What, what was it like?
0: Oh, look, uh, look, amazing! Like it, it is like it's wrong. It's I tell you, it's like a bulldog, eh? In those kitchens, you've got to be tough. Like even back then in the two thousands, it was it was super tough. And like you know, I went over there, and like, I oh, look, I knew nothing about Michelin stars. It was probably two thousand three or two or something along there. I can't remember. And I knew nothing about it. I just went to you know, I went to the news agents in the UK. I opened up a book and I saw where the best restaurants were in the UK, and I just said, right, I'm going to try there, 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 there. And um, I wanted to understand that experience, you know, um, and. I fell in the footsteps of the fat duck and more the hind's head, you know. I worked there. I thought he just opened up the pub next door and I just – it was more fun there, you know. We all love three stars. It's all great and it's really technical and interesting. But for me, I was probably one of the oldest chefs there been nearly thirty, I think I was thirty, and there was really young, really young brigade. And like, I just thought I could have more of an impact in that kitchen, you know. And I did, you know. I, I I learn about historical cooking. I I learn about techniques, and you know, it is everything that Heston is perceived on the TV is exactly what it's like there working with him. It's it's super, highly technical, you know, researched lots of trials, um, you know, but, and really involved, but, um, also environment that was super tough. Like if you weren't, if you weren't performing, there was another person knocking at the door, you know what I mean? So you really had to, you worked hard, you worked super hard, you know, one o'clock finishes, seven o'clock starts. Like it was, you know, that London style. Um, and you know, I did that for a couple of years and, you know, I, I, I really loved it, and I got a lot out of it, but walking from there, I also knew that uh, Europe and the u k had so much more to give uh, even more seasonally um, I think when you 're at uh, a three star and those and those other ones are really um, I could be a little bit paranoid about trying stuff and and working just with feel of cooking um, you know it's all it 's all really super. You know, Technical it has to be straight down the line, and I wanted to experience more of what um, not an, only English cuisine and ingredients had, but you know seasonality and you know what this beautiful produce from Europe coming in, and and you know. And when I left, um, when I left working for Heston, you know, I sat down with him and I said, oh, you know, I might try this star person here or that, and he turned and although well, I might try over there, and he goes, look, Matt just go to work for someone with some intelligence like cooking intelligence and really get into that person's brain and understand what it was and that led me to roly lee and like he changed my life in cooking dramatically like it was only 6 months but it was the most impactful 6 months of my life without a doubt you know he it was it was like working in an old escoffier kitchen it was awesome we had rotisseries we had two different types of partridges we had grouse we had caught the beef we had ducks we had english chickens we had you know everything and this is all at once like it just came in we had a a butchery and a fish person downstairs in the cellar cooking and breaking down you know barons of beef and you know whole fish and it would come up through the elevator in the in the to the kitchen upstairs, the service kitchen, and we'd be throwing it on the on the grills and cooking just like instinctively and like Rolly would come and we'd be all like, we'll have all our mesin Plus done like during the morning and Rolly would come and slap a menu at you at 11 o'clock and we had one hour to get ready for our service and it was just like really, you know, it put you on your toes and like, you know, it was so enjoyable um, uh, just understanding what those – ingredients was and he loved it and respected it and he was so knowledgeable he um you know he'd you know he'd talk about you know the trifle for an hour and where it came from and how it was and you know crystallized chrysanthemums on there why it was there and how it came about and it was some queen that did this and you know it was so fascinating um you know super intelligent person and and i really thrived off him and we You know, we had quite a lot of banter between each other and he was, you know, before service, he'd bring out a glass of champagne and him and I would have a a little glass before service and it was that sort of style and we would wag, and then, you know, he would come, you know, people would come up to the pass and you'd say, Matt, come over, meet Mick and I'd go, okay, I'm busy doing something and it's like Mick Jagger there and they were mates and like, you know, you had that experience and Delia would come up and, you know. And this is my mate dearie, and have a chat and and you know so we, we really got to it, it sort of experience that, and not only that he also he 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 understood what a personal life was, so we all didn 't have to work too hard. We did you know six or seven shifts a week, so we, we were really focused and energetic when we got into work, and um, you know he really understood that. You know, apart from work, everyone should have a good personal life and enjoy it outside of that. So, um, you know, I really, I really got a lot out of that. You know, I really did, and it was, um, it was so enjoyable the work there. So enjoyable.
1: You've done so many things in Australia since that time in, in the UK, including teaming up with Frank Kamora again, and and also Mark Best. What, what was the what's been the real sort of highlights through that sort of period for you that um, helped your career? Um,
0: look, I, I think, I think with, with me, it was not, I didn't strive to be in a position of like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my drive to be a head chef or a senior in there. It was about, for me, it was about teaching and coaching in those, in those environments, really, uh, it was really important for me um that was still tough I expected a lot from from you know from the rest of the chefs because I'd been through a lot and you know it wasn't about perfection it was about guest experiences like if that guest is not having a good time we have to make him have a good time kind of thing and it it, sometimes it wasn't the right route and I know that now um but look it was I I thought I'd learned a lot in my experiences overseas and I wanted to pass those stories and knowledges on um and that brought me into sort of into those positions where you know Mark and I worked very closely as as peers and you know Frank you know said to me, Matt you know I've got a lot of young chefs in here just I don't want to title on you just come in and just enjoy the process and enjoy fun and you know and just teach these guys you know what you think and put them on the right path and you know and that and that was really important for me I said yeah frank you've got a really good point there you know that's 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 what I really enjoy and I like in that sense, flying a little bit underneath the radar and just doing what I have to do, you know. Um, uh, and look, Frank's awesome to work with and, that, and Moveda's like, it's an institution for a reason and, and it's, you know, it's amazing and he always, he's such a brilliant, talented chef and cook and, you know, person to be around. He's really inspirational you know and Mark is Mark equally is the same Bestie was like um, you know he he's got such a brilliant food brain Mark you know and like he he's not the type of chef that will go in there and say you have to do it like this and you have to do it like me he will always challenge you like, oh, look, man, I tasted this carrot and I want to sort of make it like an apricot flavour and where do you think we need to go? And it was up to me to work it out, you know. Um, so he he loves those little challenges like that. Um, and, you know, I, I'm still really close with both of them and, and like, Mark is just, for me, you know, uh, really epitomises what Australian cuisine is about and Australian chef. And he's really, I think, just... He's not underestimated. He's just he's brilliant for what he is because he knows so much as well. And I love being around people like that and their their food brains and, and you know, again we can we can sit down and chat for two hours and it just be about food and those experiences and um, you know, where it was and and, you know, where we need to take food and what's this and then I could walk away from that and go back into the kitchen and go, Right, this is what we need to do, this is what our agenda is for the next few weeks and you know, how, do we gonna, how are we going to get there, you know? So um, that's what I love about working with them. And that's what I think made the difference uh, moving on to, you know, why the success of Pay Modern was in terms of food and what led me into uh, Captain Moonlight, and all the rest of it. Uh,
1: at the top of the show, we mentioned that your new role is at the Lawn Hotel. T- tell us a bit about that project.
0: Oh, look, <laughs> sort of... To be fair, I sort of fell on it. You know, I uh, I was obviously still had fish by moonlight and working in that. Um, And look, they came and sort of approached me and sort of had a bit of a chat and just more about like you know what do you think of the area and blah blah blah. And, you know, my intention was I didn't – look, I know Maryvale and what they've done in the past, um, and that never drove me to work for them in any way. And I sat down, I had a meeting with Justin, and he goes, what do you want? What do you think, Matt? And I said, look, for me, I just want to make the Lawn Hotel the most exceptional place on the surf coast that 's my that's my aim, how I get there and how we get there, I wanted to make it an icon not only for the community but for the tourists you know, and resurrect this icon that it once was and I you know I want to be part of that and have that challenge um, and you know they said you know justin was like that 's exactly what I want to do, and like we're happy to help you get there, and you know you we want you to treat it like your own business that's how we that's how we want you to do it, run it you know and and look i said you know these are the guidelines that i'd like to work with and they were like we are happy to give you all the tools and the resources and resources and you know help you on that path to get there and you know that means super supportive like that you know and really such a challenging uh such a challenging business in a good way you know working with uh, like a multi venue, you have to really open up the staff to a little bit of vulnerability to get the most out of them, and and how we get there and what those what that involves. Um, you know, it, you know, it takes a lot of one-on-ones. It takes you know a, a lot of time planning. You know, um, to sort of get there. But uh, I'm. I'm loving it, and the people around me are loving it as well. So you know, it's so it's it's so good. It's 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 again crazy. It's a it's a big venue, and look, it's not going to be. It's not perfect. It's not, and that's what I love about it. it. It isn't perfect. It's it's dingy. It's old. It's some things don't work, and you know, you just go all right. Well, let's just try and make the most of that. What can we do in that? Um, I I love coming back to that innocence of hospitality and that, you know, for me it's especially in the last few years about how that guest and that guest-centric, you know, guest experiences, what's that involve and how do we get there? And all I want to do is try to improve it and make it that space that people love going to and and did before, whether that be for listening to a good band or having a beer in the afternoon and watching the footy or, you know, having a nice – but feed, you know, it's like that's oh, that's what I want. I want it to be that icon on the Surf Coast. You
1: know? Give us a bit of a sense of the the food offering there. What what can people expect um, if they're going going to eat there?
0: Uh, look at the at the moment. It, look, really, the middle floor is our bistro. It's real classical pub fare. You know, palmies that are done well. Um, good steaks. You know, really composed little salads that we do. We work seasonally as well so you know beetroots and local produce goat curds and you know bits and pieces like that you know it's it's you know it's a higher volume um, so you're going to know your limitations in a way um, but it's still proper you know it's the best way to describe it you know it's proper pub fare you know um, I think it's quite generous um, you know and you know for for those travelers that want to come through or those people that feel like they just want to have a, a great little steak or, a, you know, a little calamari salad. It's all there, you know. Um, you know, it's a building process. It's about also grabbing the confidence of your staff and the kitchen and the guests and building on that. It's it's just takes a longer process than a smaller kitchen. Um uh, but we're on the right path, you know. I believe we're on the right path. And upstairs we have Coda, and that's you know a great city restaurant. That's now um, uh, you know they've got a the venue upstairs, and I, you know it's great Asian food. And for us, it's about how do we bring Coda into the city to a sense of place on the coast, you know? So we incorporate a fair bit of seafoods, and you know what's that look like? It has beautiful Asian flavours. Really talented chefs that work in there. Um, and downstairs um, is to be determined, I suppose, and that would be a, I think, a really fun, really fun family space. Going to be delicious food. It's going to be um, not theatrical, but like uh, really honest, and you know, sort of. Quick in and out, and um, you know, that's that that will be uh opened
1: in December. Earlier on, you mentioned about um the important learnings from, from failures, and everyone experiences failures, particularly in the hospitality sector, which is a really hard one to be profitable. Um, what, how, how do you approach that? You know, like, um, what do you take from those experiences, and what, what is your approach?
0: Oh, look. Some of them are really, really difficult, you know. For me, for instance, okay, my, my first restaurant, like the Ribéry, that, that failure was, was uh, encompassing like probably how we, we thought about the food and nothing else, right? So, you know, you take learnings like that. And then I look at Pay Modern as well. And I, I think that died a death of a thousand cuts, in a way, um, you know, it wasn't one particular thing. It was a, a lot of little things. Um, what I what I take away is: look, you're not the only person to go through it. Ninety, probably five percent of the industry do go through it at some point in their careers. Um, it's something that you you accept it. You you know you hopefully learn from it, um, and. You know you move forward there's there 's so many chapters in a in a cooking or a hospitality career that you have to just uh know where those failures are, probably not hopefully not do them again, but like you know i I always go back to why you do something you know you need to have the essence of why you know it's it 's really important um with those failures, and a lot of them don 't understand the why you know and you know some businesses my you know one was like more generated about money it wasn't about that it's about you know and the successes in my life have been about how you know something like captain moonlight's like how do we can give to the community how do we work in a space that's membership run you know how can we how can we um please certain demographics uh, how can uh, i adapt uh, technical cooking to everyday eating, you know, Um, so you have to throw those challenges and and those whys to your other people asking you questions. Why, you know, why can't I have a great this, you know, throughout the week and why can't I do this? And, like, really that I think it's important to have that listening process um, uh, rather than, you know, you can be wrong-headed and go in there and say it's got to be like this and it's got to be like a taco place and that's all but it's you still have to listen you have to listen and listen and listen i think
1: it's really important hey that's some wonderful advice you mentioned that you love to stay under the radar but you've received so many accolades over your career and made a huge impact well what do you love about what you do
0: uh what i look i what i love about I love I love going back to I, I love the process of teaching. Hey. I I have I've gone through and and you know other people as well, but I love the experiences. I love telling people those stories. I love being in the kitchen and going, you know, what challenging them the guys and say, "What do we think? You know, how do we, you know, are there other ways of going about it?" Opening um that environment up. You know, we we historically live in an environment, especially in the kitchen of fear and, you know, that fear of learning. Uh, we all get there in the end, but it's under under the cloud of fear. I really want to open up that environment of um, uh, expression and, you know, in a sense of vulnerability uh, and people being aware of where their strengths and weaknesses are and, and what they want to, how they want to improve um and i i love working with younger chefs and ones that are can you know listen and understand those stories and and know that there's there's knowledge involved in it and you know you know I, I love learning off them as well you know we get so many so many chefs from other countries and and their little techniques and what they learn you know it's it still fascinates me um and i love uh knowing that and understanding it and, and you know, listening to their stories,
1: um, you know, it's, it's really important. Well, Matt, I know we had our challenges getting you on the show, but I'm really glad we stuck <laughs> with it. And um, <laughs> it's been an absolute honour and a, and a wonderful chat. It's great to have you on the show. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: Thanks, Huck. I really appreciate it. Hey.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep.